Hi, I'm Brian Haynes, a member of the church at Pecan Creek. I want to take this moment to thank you for downloading and listening to the sermons of Pastor Trey Talley. I would also like to invite you to our grand opening service on Sunday, August 23rd at 10 a.m. at Pecan Creek Elementary School in Denton, Texas. For more information, visit our website at www.thechurchatpecancreek.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us, and God bless. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Brian, and uh, appreciate everyone getting here earlier, getting everything set up. We have one more Sunday evening, next Sunday at 5 o'clock, and then August 23rd is the big launch. I had lots of people sending me pictures, even today. I just received one earlier that uh, someone has received one of our brand new mailers in their mailbox. We sent out 10,000 to the closest homes in the area that went out this week. Uh, next Saturday, we're going to be doing our, our knocking on doors and handing some more out. We have another mailer going out. They're going to do door-to-door again. So August 23rd, we really, really are hoping and praying that we're going to have visitors in. So keep that in mind. Keep praying about it. And uh, keep on inviting for August 23rd. Uh, if you don't mind, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. And this is our last sermon in the book of Ephesians. We've gone through the whole book. Appreciate you have been there with me this whole time. I believe, and I have lost count, but I think we're on uh, message number 12. And we have put a little bit of a rush to it because it could have easily gone double that in sermons. There's so much information there. Uh, the first three chapters primarily dealing with, with doctrine and what we have been saved from and that we've been saved by grace and the mystery of the gospel that has now been revealed. Now we know the plan of salvation from God. We know the Messiah. We know the Christ. The prophecies have all come true. He has been revealed to us. And this beautiful salvation, how... We have been saved from our sin, saved from following the course of this world, saved from following Satan, to by mercifully being saved by the pure grace of God, not by works. And that we're even guaranteed this salvation over in Ephesians chapter 1, that we have been sealed with God's Holy Spirit, and there's no way to lose that salvation. So we rest in that. Uh, Paul opened up the book with grace and peace, and we'll find that he ends the book as well tonight with those same words, same exact words, grace and peace from God. He is writing this book to believers. We are believers, and there is only one way to have grace, and there's only one way to have peace, and it's through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we remain objects of God's wrath. Well, let's pick up where we left off last week. In the last couple of chapters here, we've been dealing with, so this is who God is. This is what Jesus has done. This is salvation. Now what? Is it just that we believe this, we're saved, and we continue to live like everyone else? No, there's a massive change in how we walk, how we move through life. Uh, we've been challenged over in chapter th- 4 and chapter 5 that we're to walk in the newness of life, not live like the Gentiles, not partake in those sinful activities that they are, to live and to act and to think differently now. And we moved into the last couple of weeks what this looks like in the home, uh, how wives are supposed to, to act now that they are saved how husbands are supposed to act now that they are saved. And even last week, we looked at how children are to obey their parents now because of this great salvation. So it has great ramifications even for your marriage, even for your children, even for how the home works. If people are believers, there should be a change in the way they act, change in the way they behave, not just because they love each other more, but because God has commanded them as such. So now we move to chapter 6, and I'm going to read verse 10 through 20, and then we'll go back and look at this. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time to open up your word, to dive in and explore the wonders that, that you have given us, the great directions of life, uh, the, the great doctrine of who you are and who we are and who Jesus is and what he's done to bring about our salvation. May these passages uh, encourage us tonight. May they challenge us tonight. And may we indeed walk in a new way because of what we learn here tonight. May we take up this armor and fight boldly the fight that we are in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if we look back at verse 10 here, chapter 6, verse 10, finally, again, he's getting to the end of this letter. We remember that books in the Bible uh, were letters written to a church. And this is at the end. He's getting to a conclusion here. So it's finally. So he's given the doctrine, who Jesus is, who God is, who man is, what salvation is. This is the way we should walk now. Final instructions. Finally, he says, but it doesn't lose importance here. It's finally, but it's extremely important. His final message to the church at Ephesus. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now we start with this because there is an extreme tendency in our world today to be self-reliant. To be, to be almost uh, uh, prideful, to you can handle all situations, I can do all this myself, I can do everything myself, I, I'm a strong-willed person, a, a strong physically maybe person, do people think different things about themselves, but here it's putting all that aside, and it's be strong in who? It is be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of His might. Now, this very interesting how this works, because when we often think, of spiritually strong people. Sometimes we get the completely wrong person in mind. Uh, you might think of someone that's very loud, very outspoken, maybe, and, and says lots of Christian terms. But oftentimes, uh, that, that may not be the strongest person spiritually. It could very well be the, the widow that slips in unannounced to church on Sundays that worships God in spirit and truth on the back row who's too shy to say anything to anyone and then slips out. Uh, the spiritual strength is sometimes not the loudest one. It's not the one who's up front. It may not be the one right here. It could easily be someone out there. So, so as we look at this, spiritual strength and physical strength, what we think of someone as being strong, 
Sometimes we can't see what's really on the inside. But we are all to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. But look at this with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 through 10. I believe it will be on your screen. Uh, we see this with, with Paul as well. That he, he truly felt that when he was at his weakest physically and, and, and facing all these temptations and trials and persecutions, that he was at his strongest spiritually. Why is that? Uh, oftentimes we think we're the strongest spiritually when everything is going just right and everything seems to be just right. And we often think that is when we're at our strongest spiritually. But we find oftentimes in the Bible it's the opposite. And those that are going through the worst situations imaginable are those with the strongest faith and they're relying on God the most. Why is that? Well, we'll find out here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 through 10. It says, But he said to me, speaking of this conversation uh, Paul has with God, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So there is something about this as trials, temptations, persecutions, insults come our direction that we, it causes us to, to realize that we are indeed weak. We are fleshly creatures. We are extremely fragile and that we can rely on as believers the omnipotent one, the one that is truly all-powerful. God himself is on our side. So he challenges them here at the end. He says, be strong, but he's not just saying, hey, hold yourself up by your bootstraps, gather yourself together, be more mentally strong, be physically strong. No, it's a whole different realm he's speaking of here. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So this is really challenging. It's getting away from ourselves. Again, it's not what we can do, but it's being strong in the Lord. How can we be strong in the Lord? Let's look. Verse 11 of chapter 6 in the book of Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So he begins now, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How are we supposed to do that? By putting on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So one of the first things that we are to do as believers is recognize that you are indeed in a spiritual battle. So many believers, so many Christians go through life living in a spiritual battlefield completely oblivious to the fact that they are living in a spiritual battlefield. But we as believers, here he's going to explain all this to us, we are in a battle. We're living in a battlefield. The enemy is extremely real. The enemy is the devil. Who is the devil? Uh, the devil we know is obviously mentioned many times in the scriptures. But here's what I often see, and perhaps you will see this as well in your own life. Two major mistakes that Christians make. Uh, one is to give Satan too much credit for things that are going on. But the opposite can cause just as much or if not more damage, and that is to deny that Satan does exist. But if we look to the Bible, we must realize that Satan is real. 
He is a real enemy. We see him all the way back in the book of Genesis. We see him mentioned throughout the scriptures. We see Jesus fighting against uh, uh, Satan's temptations. We see him in the book of Revelation. We see his interaction with, with God uh, regarding the temptations of Job as well. So to deny that Satan is real, you would and deny that Scripture is telling the truth. So we as believers have to accept that Satan is absolutely real. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, the Scripture you might be familiar with, says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, all right, your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Again, this is, this is putting us on high alert. Paul is saying you're in a battle, wake up, be strong in the Lord and in his might because what you have to fight with is nothing. You're weak in and of yourselves. If you want to fight this supernatural battle that you're going to be in, you better get ready because Satan is real. The devil is absolutely real. 1 Peter 5, 8 describes him as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What are the instructions here in 1 Peter 5, 8? To be sober-minded. In other words, to be alert. Don't let anything distract you. Not just talking about alcohol or drugs here as far as being sober-minded, but don't get so distracted, uh, inebriated with your work, with money, with this, with that, that you lose your alertness. But constantly be alert. Constantly be on the lookout for Satan and his schemes that might be coming into your life. Uh, Now, is the devil red... Uh, with a ponytail, uh, sorry, pointy tail, <laughs> I said ponytail, all right, is the devil red uh, with a pointy tail, horns, and a pitchfork? Uh, oftentimes we see this, of course, at Halloween, you know, people will dress up in different things, and they'll dress up perhaps as Satan or with cartoons, you know, I, I know some people that have had the little devil thing even, you know, tattooed on them and that kind of thing, little, little red, uh, red devils and stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about? But anyway, these, these little horn uh, figures of, of Satan, and, and is that in the Bible anywhere? Do we have anything like that in the Scripture, in the text? And of course we do not, all right? So if we go way, 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 way back, we see that, see that artists, Christian artists originally, would, would make depictions of Satan to make fun of Satan. And one of the ones that they did is they gave him cloven feet like a goat and and they would make him look odd and weird and put animal horns on his head because uh, they were drawing from scriptures that alluded to his pride and how beautiful he was at one time. So they would make these depictions to make fun of Satan to, to, to really show that, that they can do whatever they want. They can make this depiction of him, to make fun of him, to, to, to look down on him. But generations later took that artwork as, oh, this is ridiculous. Christians believe in this, that there is this red-horned, pointy-tailed, red-suited guy carrying a pitchfork around that is their enemy. All right, that is obviously not the devil that we believe in. Uh, we do not believe that at all. That's nowhere in the Scriptures. Uh, Satan is extremely powerful. But he's not as powerful as God. He is extremely wise, but of course he is not as wise as God. He is not equal to God. He is a creation of God. But also, as we think about this enemy, we don't want to go back to the cartoon caricatures and think of him as that. We find from Scripture, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 15, um, says in the, or 14, says this, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is of no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So we see definitely not a, a red-suited 
animal-horned and goat-hoofed creature here, but he describes himself as an angel of light. He describes himself as something great. If Satan ever came after you, if you ever looked behind you and saw this red-suited, horned, pointy-tailed, pitchfork individual coming at you, you would not say, oh, yeah, what do you have for me today, right? You'd be bolting. You'd be running. But instead, it's an angel of light. It's a, it's a, it's a desire. It's something beautiful. It's something great. But it's, it's the fruit that's in the garden. It looks so great. It looks so tempting. But you take a bite and all the sin. And, and it's more than you bargain for. Sin over-promises and under-delivers every time. It's this angel of delight. It, it, it's how Satan presents himself, this angel of light, delightfulness. So it can come across as something that you're not even thinking. So it's not the red-horned creature, but it's this angel of light. So it's, it's very deceiving. His ways are. And we find that. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 says this, "...so that we would not be outwitted by Satan." For we are not ignorant of his designs. So we see just by looking at a couple of passages, uh, quickly looking at, at just a general idea of who Satan is, extremely sneaky, extremely uh, uh, skilled in what he does. And you think about this, even though Satan is not God, he is not equal to God at all. He is a creature. But if you think about uh, the wisdom of being around since the time of creation, since tempting Adam and Eve, and since tempting every other person along the way, billions and billions and billions of people, you think about the wisdom that he has, the wisdom that the demons have, and their strategies on how to tempt people. And then if you really think about us, we are pretty limited as far as the ways that we are tempted. So we are an easy lot to, to be tempted. It is easy for Satan, who's been around so long, he knows how we act. He knows the, the, how we are tempted and our desires and our fleshly nature. He knows who to send around, what to send around, so that we would be drawn to that, okay? So this is an enemy. It is an absolute real enemy. Now, we don't want to go too far with this, though, as I said earlier. We don't want to give Satan too much credit. You've been around people like this. I've been around people like this as well. Good-hearted, uh, well-meaning Christian who put a demon behind every single bush, okay? The moment that I've been on been traveling. My wife has been traveling before with me and been in churches where a sound problem happens, you know, and a person stands up and says, I rebuke you, Satan, you know, in the name of the Lord, because the sound problem happened on the soundboard, all right? Uh, there's no demon in that soundboard, all right? That was just a guy who unplugged a wire back there. That messed it all up. But the point is, we don't want to put demons and put Satan everywhere and think, oh, Satan's after me, Satan's after me. Just a few weeks ago, I had a, heard a really nice Christian lady who says, you know, Satan's always after me and Satan's always in my mind telling me to do this and telling me to do that. And I had a serious conversation with her. I said, are you a believer? Have you been saved by Jesus Christ? And she said, oh, absolutely. I said, so do you really believe that Satan still resides in you and is telling you and tempting you in your head to do these things? And she thought about it for a while and realized, well, well no, that would be doctrinally wrong. So we don't want to put Satan inside of us either, okay? So we don't want to put Satan behind every corner. We also don't want to put Satan inside of us. But we do need to understand that we have a sinful flesh. And our flesh is what Satan draws out of us, our sinful nature. So even though Satan is not inside of us tempting us, we tempt ourselves with the sinful nature that is inside of us. And so he tries to draw that sinful nature out, and we are tempted, and we give in to that temptation. So this is a real spiritual battle that is going on. Let's progress here. Um, 
uh, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right, look back at this verse 12. Uh, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Who is flesh and blood? That's us, right? So he is saying here, no, 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 no. Don't just think about the people that are on this planet that perhaps are your enemy uh, because of the system that they were in, uh, the rulers that were there. He's saying, no, 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 no. Think higher than that. We're talking about warfare, a spiritual warfare, where there is no flesh and blood involved. He's saying this is not like UFC. This is not one person versus one person and their skill set, wrestlers or karate or, or boxing or whatever. This is not flesh and blood. The battle I'm describing to you is not going to be played out against another soldier, but this is a spiritual battle that is taking place. Then he goes on. Who are these rulers, authorities, these cosmic powers uh, over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? He's talking about the demonic realm. So we do have Satan as the the head of the demonic realm. We also have a third of the angels that are now demons. The book of Revelations, Daniel as well, Daniel chapter 10, extremely interesting that, that gives us a depiction of this spiritual warfare that is going on and the authorities and the cosmic powers and the angels and a little bit of the fight that is going on there as Daniel is praying. But very interesting. But, but here's the point. There's not a lot of attention given to this in, in, in Scripture, but Paul does make us aware that this is a reality that we are in and that we need to prepare ourselves for it. The demons, uh, if you look at this, Satan and his demons, we fight an enemy that is powerful, extremely powerful, that is extremely old. They've been around a long time, but they are not feeble. They're extremely powerful. They're supernatural, extremely knowledgeable, and the enemy we are fighting is invisible. So how do you fight such an enemy? Think about that for a moment. You're fighting a supernatural, super powerful, super old, wise, but extreme. We don't know the speed of demons, speed of Satan, how fast they can get around. They're not omnipresent, but they can, and the exact number of them, where they could be. And, but how do we fight this? What, what do we do? So it's not about flesh and blood. It's not about this skill set that we can acquire in and of ourselves. It's the strength of the Lord. So that's when he, goes, he opens up with, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his strength, because that is the strength that we need to fight this battle. How do we fight such an enemy? Verse 13, he lays it out. He says, therefore, why, what is the word therefore for, right? We, every time we see this word, therefore, we think, why is it therefore? All right, he's stated his case. You're in a spiritual battle. Put on the strength of the Lord. Your enemy is real. He is absolutely real. These forces are real. You're in a battle. Therefore, what should you do? Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. All right, so Paul uses a very easy visual aid for the Ephesians. He uses a great visual aid for himself. We know Paul was in prison for at least six years of his life. Uh, Roman soldiers were all around, so he could easily be looking outside at a Roman soldier as he draws out this analogy. As he writes this, he's looking at the Roman soldier who is fully equipped, fully ready for battle. And he draws these comparisons out here. He says, be ready 
because the evil day is coming. Look at this, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. This day comes for everybody. It comes, all, it comes quite often, okay? The evil day. He doesn't say, uh, be ready so that in case, as you live your life, an evil day happens to come around. No, he states it that it is going to come. Evil days absolutely come in all of our lives. Now, this could be a temptation. This could be a trial. This could be a tribulation. This could be persecution. As, uh, as Paul listed earlier, uh, he was talking about the insults and the persecutions and the trials and all the things that he went through. So what are we to do when we're tempted, when we face persecutions like this? What should we do when we're tempted? When the trials, when the tribulations of many kinds come, Paul tells us what to do. It says, do not let the enemy find you defenseless. Take up your armor. Take it all up. So he's saying this is a real battle. The spiritual forces are absolutely real. But it, we're not going to fight it in and of ourselves. We must rely on God. How do we do this? We take on the armor of God. And why do we do this? Because the evil one and the evil day is absolutely coming. So don't find yourself defenseless with no, no armor, no weapons. As the temptations come your way, you'll be easy prey. You're on the battlefield, right? So he says, take up this armor. Mount up. Put the armor on. Get ready because the enemy is coming. The evil day is coming, coming, so get ready. Here we go. Verse 14. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. This word stand is mentioned three times right here, back to back to back. And I love it because it's a call to duty. It's, it's get ready. Prepare for battle, all right? The battle is upon you. Brace yourself for impact. Stand. What are you about to stand against? Think about this. You're standing against all demonic power. You're standing against Satan himself, but you're not doing it as Trey Talley, uh, a guy with flesh and blood, but you're doing it in the strength of the Lord. And you're using the very armor. Look back at verse 13. The armor that has been made by God himself. How comforting is that? Knowing that you're in a spiritual battle. What are you going to fight with? Oh, that's right. God himself has given me the armor to be fully equipped for this battle that I'm about to go in. So he says, stand. And he says again, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So now we're going to begin to break this down. What does this look like as he's making this comparison to perhaps this Roman soldier that is right outside the door? He's saying, having fa- fastened on the belt of truth. All right, so this, the, belt of, the belt that was worn by a Roman soldier was extremely important. They could not engage in warfare until the belt was on or else they would be tripping over their garments. So they would tuck the garment in and then they would able, be able to, to fight the battle. So the first thing they would do is put, put their outfit tucked up into that belt so they could engage in this battle. So we see this, the belt, as far as the armor of God goes, represents our living a truthful life. It's called the belt of truth. We're not to live a hypocritical life. We're not to live a life of lies, but we are to live a truthful life. So as we live in the truth, because we believe in the true one, we believe in the one, Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the ultimate truth. This is the one that we believed in that has saved us, we now live in this truth, and we live in a truthful way. The opposite, we find, 
of the one who is truth is, of course, Satan. John 8.44 says this, uh, who is the father of lies. Uh, you are of your father, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we have Satan, who is the father, the initiator, the originator of falsehood and lies. And we have Jesus, who is absolute truth. And who are we called to be like? Absolutely, we're called to be like Jesus Christ. Uh, We are called to be holy because God is holy. He has saved us. He has rescued us. So it's a matter of putting on the belt of truth. We are with Jesus. We are with the one who is the truth, and we walk in a truthful way. We put away hypocrisy. We put away lies, all right? So we put on the uh, belt of truth. Let's continue on. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This would be a piece of armor, very easy to picture in your head, that, that goes over the chest, that goes over the back as well, usually connected by some kind of leather on the front and on the top and on the sides as well. But, but this is... He's telling us now to put on this, this breastplate of righteousness. Now, we know that in order to get to heaven, we would have to be absolutely perfect. We cannot be absolutely perfect. So we rely and believe in the one who was absolutely perfect, Jesus Christ. And we call that an imputed righteousness. On the cross, he takes our sin He gives us His righteousness. The only way we can get to heaven is if we are as perfect as God. Practically, we cannot do that. But only positionally, as Jesus pays for our sins, will He also give us His righteousness so that we stand before Him in judgment. There's nothing to fear because we receive His righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That is grace. Here, though, we don't want to confuse that. This this type of righteousness He is talking about is a very practical righteousness righteousness that he is talking about this is now that you have received imputed righteousness now that you have been saved by the grace of god live in a righteous way ephesians 4 24 says and to put on the new self created after the likeness of god in true righteousness and holiness romans six thirteen says do not present your members your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So this is a practically uh, a practical living that we, we live in such a way. Remember the last couple of chapters, he keeps saying walk. Now that you should walk, you should walk in this way. Don't walk like the Gentiles, walk in the light and walk like this. And there should be this, this practical change in our lives that, that helps build this armor. And we put on this armor. We, we put away sin and we pursue truthfulness. We pursue a righteous living. What is this righteousness, this breastplate of righteousness? It's a breastplate of right living. And the stronger, the more right we live, not relying on ourselves, but relying on the strength of God, the stronger this armor gets. And you find that what happens to Christians when they, when they begin to sin, oftentimes, is that the armor becomes so weak that they begin to sin more, and they begin to sin more, and they begin to sin more, and they begin to sin more, until eventually there's no breastplate of righteousness left. People on the outside are aware of the sin, 
uh, the, the, the sinfulness is, is, is all about them. Instead, the Bible calls us to confess that sin, right? And we're to do this daily. When sin comes at us, we confess, we repent, we turn from it, and we maintain this breastplate of righteous living, all right? So we live right because the one who has saved us is righteous. All right, verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Or we often take shoes for granted. Uh, Shoes were something that were extremely hard to come by in that time. Uh, Small types of sandals were available for some, and they would use those. But we also find what's pretty entertaining and pretty interesting is that the Roman army was the first army to ever use cleats. I don't know if you're aware of that, but uh, we go go way, 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 way back to the first cleats that were ever worn, it looks like, were by the Roman soldiers. And why were the why would they put cleats on a soldier? Well, because they could stand even firmer in, firmer in the ground. Uh, they could stand there. They could run faster. They could turn. They could, they could brace for impact, all right? So he is looking at this soldier, and he says, Hey, you as a believer, put on, vital part, the shoes on your feet. And what do these shoes represent? Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Our secure footing in a spiritual battle is supplied by the gospel. As a believer, we are to be shooed up, cleats ready, to, the, to ground ourselves in the sure gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is extremely important. Uh, what, what your foundation is and the strength of your foundation means everything. So we as a believer, what is the, our base? What is our foundation? What has got you cleated onto the ground? It had better be the gospel. It had better be the good news. It better not be you. It had better be Jesus Christ, the one you have believed in, that God has sent. It's God the Father has sent God the Son, who has put on flesh, who has lived a perfect, sinless life, who performed signs, miracles, and wonders to prove that he was the Christ, the Messiah, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended back into heaven and has received all authority, and that is your Savior. And you've done nothing to earn it. It is by grace you've been rescued, you've been saved. That gospel, right, that means everything. And if you don't have that, you have no peace with God. The gospel of peace, the opposite of receiving the gospel of peace is to be an object of God's wrath that he covers in Ephesians chapter 2. So having the gospel, we, we get this firm foundation about us that changes everything and prepares us for this battle. Let's move on. Uh, verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I'll read it one more time. And in, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. A Roman soldier, they were known for having extra large shields. They were around four feet tall, around two and a half feet uh, wide as well. They were made extremely tough. They were also covered in leather. They were oftentimes soaked also in some type of liquid so that when they would get into a battle, these shields would go side by side. They could cover behind them. Their whole torso would be protected. No arrows could hit. But here we find Satan is not just using regular arrows, but extremely destructive arrows, arrows that are on fire. But the Roman shield 
was coated in this leather that would soak up liquid so that when they got into battle, as flaming arrows were coming their way, would hit their shields. If it was a regular shield, the shield would catch on fire. and They would then drop those shields, right? But if the shields are coated in this liquid, in, the, in water, soaked in this, and the, they hit the moist leather, the flaming arrows would have no effect at all. So th- this is what he's saying. He says, this faith we must put on, it protects us. We can be behind it. It doesn't matter if it's a regular arrow or the most destructive weapon at the time, a flaming arrow is coming at them, that this shield will protect us no matter what. So what is this shield constructed of? Uh, It is constructed of faith. So Satan can send arrows of doubt, tribulation, hardship, persecution, humiliation, trouble with friends, family, greed, lust, other arrows at, at believers. But as we trust in God for our strength... These arrows are stopped. They are useless. They're put out. They're quenched. Uh, What is this faith, though? If we look, what is faith? Faith is a term that almost annoys me now because it is interpreted and defined so broadly. If you watch the presidential campaigns and such things as that, it's very interesting. The moment the word faith is mentioned, perk up your ears and listen to what they say next. Because everyone has faith, but what is your faith in? What is the object of your faith? The word faith can mean anything. It's just broadly interpreted, but not in the Bible. The word faith in the Bible is exact. The definition is precise. And who our faith is in, it can only be in one. It is in Jesus Christ. It is in Him and in Him alone. So our faith is not just in Hey, things will work out, or, or this faith. Everyone has this weird, bizarre faith. Uh, politicians have faith that they, you know, my faith guides me. What is this faith? Well, this faith is in God. This faith that the Bible speaks of is in Jesus Christ, the one who's accomplished salvation. This faith is in the Word of God. This is our faith, and this is the faith that builds up the shield that protects us from the enemy, and this strengthens our faith. So we need this shield, and we must keep our faith in Jesus Christ. Look closely at verse 16. In all circumstances, right there at the beginning, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. This is extremely trying because some situations, some circumstances, it is easier to take up the shield of faith. But when you're facing battles and when temptations and trials and tribulations and problems that you don't understand are coming your way, do you still take up the shield of faith? Do you still trust? Do you still believe fully in God? So it is in all circumstances, take up this shield of faith. Don't take it up only when times are easy, but when they're difficult, when these flaming arrows are coming your way, trust in God. This uh, 1 Peter verse five, chapter 5, verse 8 through 9, it's on the screen. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. We just looked at this. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, is verse 9. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So that our enemy is roaming around like a roaring lion, according to 1 Peter. He's shooting flaming arrows at us. This is a spiritual battle again, remember. So th- these, and these flaming arrows that are coming our way. They're hard to identify sometimes because Satan is so crafty, so sneaky. But he's out there. 
and he's trying to, to devour. He's trying to send these arrows our way. What are we supposed to do? We take up the shield of faith. First Peter, what does he say do? Resist him. How do we resist him? By standing firm in our faith. That's a great comfort. And also realizing that all believers are facing the same temptations. All believers are getting arrows at them as well. And we take up the shield of faith together. And also, let me mention this. The Roman soldiers would put these shields together, four feet tall, two and a half feet wide, coated in leather, soaked. Uh, They could stand behind them when thousands upon thousands of arrows are coming at them. They would create a wall. There would be a wall in front, there would be a wall on top, and all the arrows would stop. Uh, There's something to be learned on that as well, uh, that that we are much stronger as we stand together as the body of Christ. And if you're out there as a Christian trying to do this on your own, it's going to be tough. But you're hanging around other believers who are helping you, supporting you along the way. This battle is going to be much easier to fight. All right, let's progress here. Uh, Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Absolutely most critical part of the armor. Take the helmet of salvation. He is talking to believers here. Uh, that have been saved. And this salvation ultimately protects the believer. We know that Satan will not win the war. Satan may win battles here and there. We may succumb to temptations here and there. But the war has been won. How could the war have been won? Because Jesus has defeated Satan on the cross. He is, our salvation is guaranteed. We go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Having believed, you are marked Uh, in the Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance to come. So the ultimate war is won. We are at peace with God. We have received grace from God, so we put on this helmet. So no matter how thick the battle gets, how tough the battle is, there is an assurance of salvation that our salvation is held secure by Him. Next he says, "...and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God." The only offensive weapon that we are given is the Word of God. We see in the Bible that when uh, Satan attacks Jesus and tries to tempt him, uh, what does Jesus use? How did he fight Satan? He used the Word of God. Now, it's also interesting, what did Satan use to attack Jesus? Anyone remember? It's also the Word of God, right? Quite interesting. So what we find is that Satan knows the Word of God very well. But any time he used it, you will notice it would be taken out of context, used in a way that would not bring about truth, but would bring about a lie. So just because you hear the Word of God being spoken, preached, taught, friends, shares the Scripture with you, we still have to be very careful because Satan himself used the Word of God to try to tempt Jesus. But a correct interpretation of the Bible, using Scriptures correctly, is how Jesus defeated Satan. So if this is our only weapon, the Word of God, uh, what do we need to do? If the Word of God is how we, we defeat Satan, do we defeat the demonic activity, we, we, we build up, and what are we to do? We'd better know the Word of God, right? If we don't know the Word of God, we're in this spiritual battle with a plastic butter knife. Uh, what good is that going to do against the enemy? But how do we get sharper swords? How do we get a sword that can do more damage? We study the Word of God. You attend church regularly. You devour God's Word on your own. And you prepare for the enemy that is coming your direction. Uh, Verse 18, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all power and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. 
This is probably one of the most neglected parts of spiritual warfare, especially in our day. It is very difficult to find uh, believers who habitually and consistently pray to God. We are mesmerized by gadgets and phones and apps, and our, our mind's attention is always elsewhere. And to be a praying person, it takes a lot of self-discipline. It takes, as Jesus said, go, go into a closet. Uh, get the distractions away from you and pray and talk to God. And that is something we have a hard time doing today more and more and more is isolating, getting away, and talking to God. Yes, we'll pray here corporately, and uh, we'll do that multiple times during a service, but what is being told uh, to them here is on an individual basis, go and pray. And what's he say in verse 18? Well, how many times should we pray? What time should we pray? All times. Always be in a conversation with God. This doesn't mean nonstop, always praying throughout the day, but anytime, all the time. You don't have to have a five-minute period, ten-minute period here. That's fine to do that. Have a set-aside time, absolutely. Go into the closet, go somewhere, isolate and pray. But throughout your day, you can pray in snippets here and there, praying, talking to God. That's the right that we have because we have this intercessor. We have this mediator, Jesus Christ, who says praying at all times, in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. In other words, praying about all kinds of things, a variety of things, anything that that is concerning you, that you should be, just talk to God about it. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So he says, put on this armor, but don't forget to pray. Constantly be in prayer and to keep alert. Why do we stay alert? Because our enemy, the devil, Roams around like a roaring lion. And then he says this, look at this, making supplication for all the saints. So do we just pray for ourselves? No. Uh, we, we can definitely pray for ourselves, pray for our families as well. But that we pray, we make supplication for other believers as well. Again, saints are not the few people that the Roman Catholic Church has uh, established as saints. We're all saints, those who are believers. So that we pray for others. And you'll often find this in your life. Things might be going great. There may not be a big problem for you to pray about. But I guarantee you there's someone that you know, there's other believers who are going through something. And so if you don't have a major problem that you need to be praying about, uh, what about your, your Christian brother? What about your Christian sister, right? So we pray for them. We strengthen them as well through our prayers. Uh, let's continue on here uh, very quickly. Do not neglect prayer as you fight in this spiritual battle. Uh, often neglected, but we must remain in a constant attitude of prayer. One of my favorite theologians says this, to call upon God is the chief exercise of faith and hope. Where else do we go? You're fighting a spiritual battle against a spiritual enemy, and we're not doing it on our own. So who should we talk to about this? We should talk to the one that created everybody. We should talk to God, the one that who has adopted us, the one that who, is, who has made us his children. That's who we go to, the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one. That's who we pray to. All right, let's wrap this up. Uh, verse, uh, verse 19, and also for me, he says, pray for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. All right, he, he is calling on them. Pray for me that I continue to proclaim the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe and he has to keep this going, keep this going. So he says, pray for me that I continue to open my mouth boldly. Let's skip over to verse 23. He ends with this. 
into the book of Ephesians. Here we go. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. He sandwiches this book, this letter to the church of Ephesus with grace and peace. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says virtually the exact same thing here at the end. So all the instruction that he has given in between this, he begins with grace and peace, he ends with grace and peace. The only way to have grace, unmerited favor from God, is through Jesus Christ and what he accomplishes in his life and death on the cross. The only way we can receive peace from God is through Jesus Christ. He is talking to believers, so he says grace and peace to you. This is something we have to always remind ourselves of, is that we have received grace, and we are at peace with God. And it changes everything. It changes how we walk, changes how we live at home, changes marriages, changes how we parent, and also it changes how we do battle. We are rooted in the gospel. We have grace, we have peace, Jesus Christ is our Savior, and we stand firm, and we fight this battle. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for our time spent today in the book of Ephesians, studying your word. Indeed, we are in a battle. Uh, The battle is real. The enemy is real. Satan and demonic forces are real. However, we often neglect it. They're invisible. We don't see them. There's no red suit around. And we neglect to realize that there is a real enemy. But your word says this enemy is real. It is supernatural. He is invisible, extremely powerful. How are we supposed to fight? not in and of ourselves. We are to rely on you. And that is our prayer today, God, that we would be strong in the Lord and in your strength and in your power. Help us to understand the gospel more and more. Help us to put on the belt of truth. Help us to to stand firm in our faith, to have the shield of righteousness, this helmet of salvation, that we can rest in knowing that we are saved. And help us to depend on your word so we can fight the battles that come our way as Jesus did when he was tempted as well. Help us to prepare ourselves to stand against the evil day. Thank you for grace. Thank you for peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship God. Thank you so much.